Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast, where we're starting a new series called Questions, God, Faith, Life, and the Challenge of Being Human. Today's conversation comes from a question from you all, which is, what do you do with the mythological shit in Revelation? Can I say that? I can always put a beep on it. So I want you to start with this conversation. What do you know about the book of Revelation? Enjoy That is actually going to be a perfect segue for where I want to go today. <laughs> Revelations 21.8, liars go to hell, liars go to hell. So we're going to talk about the book of Revelation. It's not plurals. There's no shuns in here. There's just a revelation that is taking place in this book. And we're going to do that in a few different ways. We need to talk about the difference between an optimistic and a pessimistic view of Revelation, which is really an optimistic or pessimistic view of the Gospels of Jesus of Kingdom and what God is doing in the world. And then we're going to talk about a little bit of context by talking about everybody's favorite 18th century preacher, John Darby. Can I get an amen? Then we're going to do a little bit of Civil War, a little bit of World War I, a little bit of World War II, a little bit of post-World War II. Then we're, of course, going to talk about my grandmother's Buick because, man, that was a beauty. And then we're going to talk about reclaiming kingdom if we're really going to understand what Revelation is about. So I think you understand perfectly where we're going here. So I want to start with a little quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of humanity will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion, and humanity's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has even ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, herself, Godself. And the most pretentious fact about any person is not what we at any given time may say or do, but what we in our deep hearts conceive God to be like. A.W. Tozer. So what we think about God makes all the difference. And particularly when we look at a book like Revelation, or interestingly enough, the very beginning book, Genesis, we often have very radical ideas about who God is. And oftentimes when we look at the bookends of the Bible, we have either a pessimistic view of who God is or an optimistic view of who God is. So when we look at the book of Genesis, a lot of times what people will do is they'll start the narrative in Genesis 3. We're corrupt, we're depraved, this thing is horrible, we're all sinners, man, God really hates us. Somebody talked to a talking snake and that really screwed everything up for the rest of humanity, right? But that is a pessimistic view of where the Bible starts. That is not where the Bible starts, nor is it the thematic point of all of the scriptures or the nature of God. Genesis starts in chapter 1, where there is a good God. And this good God creates all of creation. And this God is crazy about what God has made. We don't start with the problem of evil. We start with the problem of good. We start with this reality that there is endless, gratuitous good going on in the universe. 
and this God is so interested in this good and humanity's role and participation with creation and with creator that this God is endlessly at task of making sure that we are living into this goodness. It is an awareness of the suffering. There's an awareness of the wounding. There's an awareness of sin. We talk about this palpable disruption of shalom, right? God desires wholeness and harmony and unity for the universe, but we disrupt that many times. But the goal was still the harmony. The goal was still the good. The book of Revelation will go the same way. There's this reality of who Jesus the Christ is as Lord of the universe and the work that Jesus this Christ did. And there's an optimistic view of it in Revelation, but most often because of really popular books like Left Behind or guys like Hal Lindsey or the last 150 years of American church history in particular, we have a very negative view of what's taking place in the book of Revelation. And you have people who spend a lot of time trying to decode for you what the Bible is saying. And we've all seen the signs or the poster of somebody who's telling you when the world is end and they figured it out. But the great thing about all of those people is none of them have been right. So you really don't have to worry about those people when they come up with their understanding of when Jesus is coming back or what the end of the world looks like or how the apocalypse is going to happen. And then the real question for yourself is, is that even what the book of Revelation was about in the first place? And my response to you is no. That's 150 years of American theology that we're talking about, not 2,000 years of church tradition that is thinking about the book of Revelation and its place in church scriptures and how we think about it and how we understand it. So... My grandmother had this big brown Buick, as grandmothers do, and it had cloth brown seats that she put towels over when I would sit in it. And I remember one day, when I was 10 years old, I get in the big brown Buick with the brown seats, and like, you know, like the big open seats, like where you could like lay like seven kids across the front with grandma, right? And she's got like the beehive, you know, like that's my grandma, jet black even to this day, and she's like 95 years old, right? Can't see over the steering wheel, fiery, lots of things going on there with my Mimi. Um, and I remember her putting in a cassette tape because I was 10 and that was a thing back then, right? And it was the Left Behind series. And I'll always remember the opening of it. They're in a 747 flying over the ocean. And all of a sudden, all these people are starting to disappear. But of course, their clothes are left there because God wants nothing to do with Tommy Hilfiger in heaven, right? And so the clothes are left on the seats and everybody's terrified. What has happened? The rapture has taken place. Everybody be terrified because God has taken his holy people out and the rest of you are quite screwed. It's a very lovely story that sold hundreds of millions of copies. And that's a pessimistic view of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And that understanding of rapture, even the word rapture is 150 years old. It is not a pervasive part of church tradition, church history or theology across orthodoxy of all Christian traditions. Where it comes from is John Darby. John Darby was a Scottish theologian and pastor who lived in the 1800s. And John Darby grew up in this really wealthy noble family where his noble family was renowned in Scotland for being kind of horrible people where they had a dungeon and they would torture people for 500 years in their castle. Right, if you look at like castles in England, it's one of those castles that's the most haunted castle in England because of how horrible this family is. That's where John Darby came from. He had a father who didn't love him, didn't pay attention to him, didn't care about him, right? And his father told him that his mother left him at a young age or died, even though he just kind of shooed his mother away. So this is John Darby for you. John Darby was told that he needs to be a businessman and make a lot of money and continue the nobility of his family. John Darby eventually becomes a pastor and creates this theology called dispensationalism. 
Dispensationalism is the bedrock for American theology, eventually fundamentalism, and eventually evangelicalism, and how we understand and read the scriptures. Most of you don't know who John Darby is, but most of you have been affected by dispensationalism, whether you've used that language or not. But you need to understand the context of John Darby if you're going to understand how most of us have thought about Revelation in the 21st century. Even if you're not evangelical or haven't come from an evangelical background, because of hundreds of millions of copies being sold in a book like Left Behind, we pervasively think about a book like Revelation in a very specific way. A fictional book that is acting as commentary, right? Because when you read scriptures mixed with fiction next to each other, you start to believe these things must be one and the same, and they are not. But that's not how we've interpreted it over the years. If you want to understand the context of Revelation even a little bit more, you need to understand this, and we all need to own this very clearly. We represent the most powerful people the planet has ever seen. We are Americans living in the 21st century. There has never been an empire greater than ours. There never has been a military greater than ours. There has never been an economy greater than ours. The book of Revelation was not written to a powerful military and for a powerful empire people. It was written against those people. That's a context that you need to understand. So for the first 300 years of the church, the church was martyred by another very powerful, very militaristic empire called Rome, right? And this military empire ruled by Caesar killed a lot of Christians, in fact, millions of them. So when the book of Revelation happens to be the last book on the chopping block, by the way, for the books of the Bible that are going to make it in, it was either that or the Shepherd of Hermes. Missed it by a close hair there. Everyone knows the Shepherd of Hermes, am I right? No. The last two books, though, which are what were going to be put in the Bible, they chose the book of Revelation not because of the apocalyptic literature that is in there, not because of all of the symbols that are pervasive in the book, but because of the way that it talked about Christ as the true king of this radical kingdom and how this Christ goes about his kingdom, which is very different than the kingdom of Caesar. We don't read the book of Revelation that way because we're not one of those martyred people. And we didn't live in the first 300 years of the church where the early church did not participate in violence. You would be crazy if you participated in the military because you would be forced to kill another human being and you would be forced to be subservient to another empire over the kingdom of this Jesus. And you would never do that as one of the Christians in the first 300 years of the church. So you just have to understand that why the book of Revelation is there is very different than how you will read it today. And we have to own that if we want to deal with the symbolism that is taking place in this very intriguing book. And we have to understand the context of the people who have shaped us and made us think about this book. So after 300 years of martyrdom in the church, when millions of people were killed and crucified just like Christ, all of a sudden a guy named Constantine came around, an, empire, an emperor of Rome, and made Christianity the official religion of this Roman Empire. Now all of a sudden the book of Revelation is treated very differently than it was treated in the first few hundred years of the church. Instead of being subversive commentary to the empire and the beast, Caesar, right? Now it becomes all of these other things. And then as you move through history and as the church and empires become a little bit more married together, you hear less and less commentary about the beast being Caesars, kings, rulers who hurt people, right? And empires that create structures 
and systems that damage and ask people to create allegiance here and to participate in violence in a way to protect these empires. Uh, instead of being commentary against that, what we hear is mythological, if you will, spiritual beings, all of the creatures in Revelation, instead of being subversive talk that are actually talking about the empire, because you can never say Caesar in a subversive book, right? Why do they, in, in the book of Revelation, they're always talking about Babylon? Because you can't say Rome. Why do you talk about the beast? Because you can't say Caesar. For example, the book of Jonah was written during the Babylonian captivity, but the book of Jonah is constantly talking about Nineveh. Why? Because you can't say Babylon when you're in Babylonian captivity, so you say Nineveh. Does that make sense what's going on in Revelation? So there's this whole book that is taking place that is commentary on how empires work and how power is used and how there is a Jesus, this Christ, this better Caesar, this better king, this Lord of all of the universe who lives out a different way, but we don't think about the book that way because we're the most powerful people the earth has ever seen. And we follow the lineage of from Constantine to the Protestant Reformation to lots of places like the United States where the church and religion are married with empire and we cannot separate the two. It doesn't mean you can't be proud to be an American. It doesn't mean you can't be excited about the place that you live. But just know that the book is speaking against us more than it's speaking for us. Because the book of Revelation is very clear. Empires do one thing. They protect themselves at all costs. So when Rome called it Pax Romana for 200 years, this piece of Rome, it came at the bloodshed of millions of other people. When we speak of Pax Americana, it speaks at the bloodshed of millions of other people. That's just a reality that we all know, right? We have, a, an, a, we have a military and an empire for one reason. We're protecting traffic lanes. Why do we have a US Navy, right? To protect gulfs and straits all around the world that have oil flow that allow us to drive and have fuel rates at the rates that we do. This is just reality. This is not even like a, it can be a critique of it, but it's commentary on it as well. But when we can understand our social context, now we can under, better understand what the book of Revelation is actually getting at. And we have a really hard time dealing with that. So. By the time of John Darby, you have this guy who grew up in a family where his father hated him and his mother wasn't around, and he grew up with a really troublesome past, and he's growing up in a world where empires and religion are married together, and now he becomes a pastor instead of a businessman. And John Darby creates this theology called dispensationalism that begins the great divorce between the physical world and spirituality for the 20th century and 21st, the 19th century, 20th century, and 21st century church. So before, or and around the time of John Darby, the church was leading the way for social justice. YMCAs, Salvation Armies, Red Cross, every major college that you can name, Harvard, Yale, Brown, USC, whatever, was started by who? Churches. And the church was incredibly leading the way when it came to social justice, education, hospitals. Every hospital that you see around, who's it named after? A church. Because the church understood that the kingdom of God is happening here in the physical world. Then you have a guy like John Darby come around and he says, my physical world is really horrible and my experience of my father is very angry. So what must the other father look like? He must be pretty angry too. And then some other things started to happen in the 19th and 20th century. Civil war, the bloodiest war that the United States has ever seen, where you have Christians shooting Christians. What do you do with that in your theology? When two people who are holding the Bible point a gun at each other and say, I'm right, now which kingdom are you sub subservient to? The one of Christ or one of the empire? That leads you to some troubles. 
and then you have World War I, and then you have World War II, which now Christians all over the earth are killing one another, right? And we have the famous story of World War I, where on Christmas Eve night, English soldiers and German soldiers are shooting each other on the battlefield, pause for a day to celebrate Christmas together, right? Come out of the trenches, share gifts and hot chocolate, and the next day start shooting each other and mustard gassing each other again. That's crazy talk. Because our understanding of kingdom and who the king is and the empires that we're a part of was all blurred in some unhealthy ways. So you have the John Darby's of the world and a multitude of other preachers who are living at a time in which we've seen the most tragic wars that the world has ever seen. And so how do they start talking about God and this world? This thing is a sinking ship. This thing is horrific. Look what we're doing to each other. Clearly God must want us to get out of here. You can understand how they got there, right? Then some other crazy stuff starts to happen post-World War II. We now become the richest, most powerful people that the world has ever seen. After World War II, the United States, evangelical and mainline denomination Christians are the wealthiest people on planet Earth, right? We represent 5% of Christianity, yet we are paying for nearly all of the missionaries to go around the world. So we are colonizing theologically the rest of the world with a view of empire where we do not critique the emperor or empire because the emperor and the empire has made our lives pretty nice. And you have to have all of that in your mind to be even begin to deconstruct the reality of a book like Revelation. Because we are so tied to the empire ourselves and we have been so disconnected from a kingdom that is physically dealing with the suffering and the wounds and the reality of this world that what we've done over the last 150 years is we've made it a spirituality that this kingdom starts somehow after our death. And God wants to rapture us out of here or press the elevator button up because this is a sinking ship, my friends, and God must clearly want to get us out of here. But the evangelical, the mainline denomination, the conservative Christian brain begin to struggle with this from the 1950s on because this is the theology that's being talked about about a book like Revelation. We need to get out of here. Yet we're the most powerful people in the world. So how do you deal with that reality? How do you deal with the fact that this is supposed to be a sinking ship and this is a really horrible place and clearly God wants to rapture us out of here, but my white picket friends and my pool, my friends, is pretty nice, right? And so there becomes become this cognitive dissonance between the realities of our theology and our economic practices. And so now when we come to the book of Revelation, we love the symbolism stuff because we're completely detached from it. And of course we want symbolism because it means we don't have to participate in a radical commentary against an empire, especially if that empire is making my life pretty nice right about now. We all come from a context. We all read the book of Revelation, the entire Bible from a context, from the churches that you grew up in, from the churches that you didn't grow up in, from the face that you had or didn't have, right? From you read the Left Behind series or didn't read the Left Behind series. The point of John Darby is the point of all of us. Our view of God and our view of the scriptures has often been predicated on the beliefs and the patterns of people before us. The really great thing about living in the 21st century now is we can put a stop to the game of telephone because we actually have the information and the data to go back and say, oh, that thing called dispensationalism wasn't around before the 1820s. That idea of the rapture that has been so prevalent in the church for the last 150 years wasn't even here at the founding of our nation, right? And we have the history for that and the academics for that and the education for that. And we can just call it out and say, oh, 
I understand why this theology got here, but I can also understand how to have a bigger commentary and a bigger view of how to move away from that and how to have a different view of who God is and what kingdom is and my role in this kingdom. And that's how I can participate in the book of Revelation in a different way. Because now I know better than all of the things that maybe we were fed in our specific context. That's like a great gift for all of us to participate in in some capacity. So with that said, let's actually read chapter one of Revelation and talk about a more optimistic view of where we're at with this book. Revelation one. This is a revelation, again, just singular, from Jesus Christ. Again, this is why this book was picked in the Bible because it's all about who Jesus is as the Christ. Just so you know quickly, of all of the books of the New Testament, there's a very specific reason that they make it in the New Testament. One of those reasons are, was this book written by an apostle? An apostle being somebody who actually saw Jesus firsthand. So all of the apostles who were actually originally with Jesus are Paul, are the only people who get books in, in the New Testament. Does that make sense? That's a really important category. The other thing that really matters is, what does this thing say about Jesus as the Christ? Not Jesus as the Jewish rabbi. Very different view as well. It's very important. If you don't know what that means, that's like a whole nother conversation. I'd love to take you to a beer later. Uh, and we'll get into that. So this is a revelation about, from, of who Jesus Christ is, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Here's another question for you. When it says soon take place, when you live with a pessimistic view of God, the Bible, kingdom, or revelation, then generally we talk about God in the future. Everything that God is doing, kingdom, is waiting for us somewhere out there. But I want to reorient us to the reality that the majority of the Greek and Hebrew language used in the Bible is what tense? Present. That when the Bible talks about kingdom, it's not talking about that kingdom. It's talking about the reality of the kingdom of heaven needs to be taking place here because if we are members of this kingdom, right? When Paul says, I'm a citizen of heaven, he's not saying I'm a citizen out there. He's saying, I've already got my passport because I'm a member of this heavenly community and I'm living these realities out as a citizen here on earth now. Very different way of looking at it. So the things that will soon take place, we need to think about this in a present tense commentary against empire and not a futuristic elevator that we're gonna take up later. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. And this is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Again, prophecy translated best is not a futuristic event that's about to take place. Prophecy in all of the Bible is what? Commentary on what's happening now. All of the prophetic books are commentary on what's taking place in empires and in the religion that's currently taking place. Um, God blesses the one who reads the words of the prophecy to the church and he blesses all who listen to its messages and obey what it says for the time is near. And this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. A huge line for us to recognize there, right, as the book of Revelation is opening. Empires do what? They protect themselves. How do empires protect themselves? Violence against other people groups. So why is resurrection for you incredibly important now as the early church? Because even if they kill you, it doesn't matter. Your king's already risen from the dead. So you're going to be okay, even as you live this subversive kingdom and empire, right? This is why Martin Luther King Jr. was so radical. Oh, they can come against me for, trying, for me trying to tell other people that everyone's equal, and they will take my life, right? But that's okay. I live into a greater hope that is beginning on this earth now, and I will have a future hope later because of this risen king who's king of all the world. 
All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his father. He has made us, present tense, everyone represented in this room. The goal is all of humanity, right? We are a kingdom of priests. When you live in a kingdom, who are the most venerated people in our culture? Memorial Day, 4th of July. Soldiers. This is not a critique on soldiers. This is a reality that the book of Revelation is talking about something different. We're not a kingdom of soldiers, we're a kingdom of priests. And priests don't do a certain thing. They don't participate in violence in a certain way. Uh, and he has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. This is where we're going to end with today, and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. The rest of the book of Revelation, I would say, is an optimistic viewpoint of how, about who Jesus is as the Christ and as the rightful king of the universe. And so I want to reclaim three things as we look at the book of Revelation today. I want to think about a different king, a different kingdom, and different kinds of citizens. If you were to read Revelation 4 and 5, there's this huge opening about John is before the throne room of God and there's 10,000 by 10,000 angels, millions of angels who are proclaiming that God is holy and glorious and all of these other things. And in every other part of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, like Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, you always have these images of well, of there is God and everyone is around God's throne proclaiming who God is. And then what John sees is they say, who's worthy to talk about the prophecies that are currently at hand? And he says, look, the Lion of Judah is coming. And then when you see the Lion of Judah in Revelation 5, it's actually a slaughtered lamb of God. That's the twist on the tale for Revelation for you. The revelation of God is that the slaughtered lamb has already done the work. Is that the slaughtered king has already brought his kingdom. And that's a very different way of looking at the book of Revelation than this future hope that we deal with later. The difference of Jesus for every king on earth is that Jesus doesn't perpetuate and propagate violence. Jesus says, I will take on all of the violence of the world and I will dish none of it out later. And so you do not see a conquering king to start the book of Revelation. You see somebody who was already slaughtered. And for us as priests of this kingdom, we say, oh, that's the role that we take as well. Because the book of Revelation is an invitation to our present suffering. The book of Revelation is an invitation to the suffering that the world already has. And that's why it is filled with endless symbolism about the destructive forces that are taking place in the world. And just like the book of Exodus, who never fights in either of these books? The priesthood doesn't. Because it's God's job to save. So all of the symbolism, all of the disruption of creation, all of the chaos that you see in a book like Revelation is God acting, not humanity acting. But what it's talking about that God did is that God is the one who shed his blood. God is the one who dealt with violence so that we could put an end to the suffering that is taking place in the world. Instead of, we're the most powerful people group in the world who thought that the ship was sinking, but then all of a sudden we became extremely wealthy and powerful and aligned with the empire in a way that we don't actually want to die and we don't actually want to deal with suffering. So it's very convenient that the theology that we look to was God's going to get us out of here before any of the suffering happens or before we die, right? But the book of Revelation is an invitation into that present suffering saying, 
Of course the world has filled with wounds. Of course the world is filled with suffering. And you as the priesthood get to be just like the king, the slaughtered lamb, and you get to go stand in solidarity with the suffering world. What an amazing invitation that you're welcomed into. As Brene Brown says, and I quote it all the time in here, your healing is directly dependent upon my healing, and my healing is directly dependent upon your healing. When you deal with the suffering of your world, now I get to deal with the suffering of my world. I'm not trying to escape that thing because of my power and because of my wealth and because I believe that somebody else is going to go deal with that suffering for me, right? A person with a badge and a gun on. No, I'm going to deal with the suffering of the world wherever I find myself because that's the kingdom that I'm a part of. And because I know that the whole book of Revelation is a commentary on the empire and the suffering that the empire brings, which is why the book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of conversation about morality and the palpable disruption of shalom. And it has a lot of language, particularly Revelation 18, feel free to read that for your bedtime reading tonight, about our wealth, our luxuries, and our economic trafficking. There's this great little line in Revelation 18 that says, you're even selling humans as slaves. And there's a reason that it's a part of one of the last chapters of Revelation before God comes in and restores everything. Is God saying, look at where all your immorality got you. It even led you to a place where you actually believe that you as the empire are better than these other people. And from the very beginning of the Bible, like a book like Exodus, what is the one thing that God's very passionate about? If I'm going to free you from oppression and from the empires of this world, including the empires of sin and death and the physical empires that put us in structures now, then you better not go around and oppress other people. If I'm going to save you from Pharaoh and Caesar and Satan and everything else, then you better not go around and do the same thing to others from the same thing that I freed you from. And then you better not go around terrifying people about hell and convincing them that this empire is somehow better than the kingdom that I want you to live in, right? And there's, so there's strict warnings against that as a reality of be grateful for wherever you live, but that's not the kingdom that you're a citizen of. Be grateful for wherever you live, but you are a priest of a different kind of kingdom. And in this kingdom, you don't get to avoid the suffering of the world. You participate in it because you are the representatives of this slaughtered lamb and of this slaughtered king. And so when we have a different kind of kingdom in the book of Revelation, we end with these beautiful pictures in Revelation 21 and 22. Not the liars go to hell part, but the part right after that which is all of the kingdoms come into this new heaven, into this new Jerusalem. And here's what it says. It doesn't say we go up. If you read Revelation in 21 and 22, it says that God comes down, which seems to be pretty fitting with the rest of the Bible. Every time that God's people or all of humanity is in need of saving, what does God do? He always comes this way. Because a good loving parent, what do they do? They always go the direction of the child. It's the unhealthy parents that are craving love from their children. This is where kids get messed up, right? Because a parent is so dealing with their own suffering that they need the kid to love them back. We have an infinite God. When you take a million away from infinity, there's still infinity. And that's why the direction is always towards us. And this kingdom is always about a slaughtered lamb moving towards earth and God bringing this kingdom here. And that's why the vast majority of the gospel stories are not about the crucifixion and the resurrection. They're about Jesus living in incarnation in the midst of our suffering here. But that's not how we're taught to read the Bible at times. We're taught that we're getting out of this place. But if we're going to reclaim the book of Revelation, we need to understand the context of where we've come from. If we're going to understand and reclaim Revelation, we need to understand there's a different kind of king. And this king doesn't play around like all the other kings of the world. This king dies for the sake of his citizens, doesn't ask them to die for his sake. It's a little bit different, right? Correction there, he will ask you to die for his sake, but in a different way. He does it first, right? 
Jesus goes about and he leads the way to the cross. And he says, if you wanna really live this life, then you're gonna follow me through this suffering and you're gonna die in the same way for the world as I died. You don't get a free pass out of here because the only reason you're looking for that is because of the context that you come from. And if you really wanna be about this kingdom, then you're gonna be a priesthood of this kingdom and you're gonna be a Jamarco Washington in the world. And you're gonna hang out with the high rows and you're gonna be an EPO of this world and you're gonna hang out with homeless people. You're gonna, you're gonna, whoever you are, and I believe so many people in this community, you're gonna be a priest who's gonna participate with the suffering of this world because that's what the slaughtered lamb did first. It's a present reality that's taking place. And that's how I think we understand the mythological shit that's going on in Revelation. It's symbolism that says, participate in this kingdom now because this king has already done the work and that frees you to do the work in this current age, not just in an age to come. Let's ask these questions together. How can you begin to reclaim the book of Revelation? Maybe for you that's, I need a better view of king. Maybe some of you think about king like John Darby did, a father who's really abusive, who's really angry, and is much more like Santa Claus than an infinitely good, loving God of the universe. Maybe you need to reclaim kingdom. Maybe there's parts of your life that are a little too tied to other empires in the kingdom that this Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, has given you. That's a hard realization, by the way. And I think what's really hard is that we live in a country that is very thankful for the parts of empire that we, the, the luxuries that we have. And that's real. Like when I call 911, police officers and firemen come to my house right away. When I turn on water, unless I live in Flint, Michigan, it turns on right away, right? There's a lot of things that work because of the empire. But the book of Revelation is a critique against the empire. So how do I live in that tension? And how do I call out the empire and its emperors at times when it's going against the kingdom? and it's king. How do I live as a good, how do I reclaim what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom? Where I am first and foremost a priest, which means what? I freely encounter God. And I freely participate in the solidarity of the suffering of this world. I don't abandon it. Think about those questions together and we'll come back together. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.